what I was going to say is um, I'm at a point at a point in um, church history, this church history class, where the research to prepare for the class takes up so much time that I've actually left minimal time, at least this week I've been left with minimal time to really prepare the class. So today's gonna be, that, today wants basically that's come down to mean two things for us. And um, the first one is that one is gonna be brief. I think this is gonna be the briefest class I've had yet. I've got two and a half pages here. So there's not a whole lot there. Um, two, it's also going to be more informational. So today's going to sound and feel a little, little bit more like a class than a Bible equipping hour. And that was something that originally I had kind of wanted to avoid. But I think since we're, I guess I'm taking today kind of as though we're in a low gear as we're accelerating up the speed. And um, as we get back up to speed, this is probably kind of how it's going to be, at least for this week. I hope next week to really get in, in depth into the subject we're going to deal with now. Um, a lot better and really draw some some doctrinal and some biblical points out of it and some applications to our lives as well. So, um, let's get into it. First of all, just a little bit of review. It's been two months, I think, and uh, since we had our last church history, or, or rather, um, church father church history class. We've had some good church history classes since on other areas. So it's been two months, and um, probably good just to remind us and then just do a little bit of a review on where we've been. So the last lesson we had was on Alexandria. Remember Alexandria is way over here in the east in Egypt. I don't know if your eyes are good enough or not, but you can kind of see the little dot there that says Alexandria, eastern part of the empire. And uh, we learned about Clement of Alexandria. And then previous to that lesson, we also discussed the East, what I call the Easter Rebellion. There was that whole much ado about who knows what with the church all fighting over, you know, how to celebrate the Paschal Festival, what eventually became Easter. We learned about that. And prior to that still, we also learned about, we had a number of lessons on various heresies and sects. Uh, so you might remember some classes on Gnosticism, the weirdo pseudo-philosophical heresy. You might remember its, its cousin, Marcionism. We talked about that. And then also this other sect, which wasn't really related to that at all, but was a completely different spinoff called Montanism. Right? And so geographically speaking, we, we, and I think in our most recent lessons, we've really been in the east a lot. Uh, Montanism is from Phrygia, which is kind of northeast. Um, obviously, Alexandria, southeast. We have uh, Marcionism. Actually, Marcion, he was active in the west, but I think he came originally from Pontus, which is also should be northeast-ish. So we spent a lot of time in the east. And actually today... We're going to move over from the east and we're going to head back west. We've had a few lessons, not too many, but we've had a few lessons on places like Rome and uh, France, then called Gaul. So we have been in the west before, but we're moving westward. So we mentioned in our last lesson on Clement of Alexandria that by the beginning of the third century, uh, sort of maybe about the end of the second century, we begin to see a little bit of a division in the church's theology, some tendencies. In the East, 
tended to go a certain direction in their theology. They tended to be more philosophical and speculative. Um, and the West tended to go a different direction. So today, what we're going to look at, our, our uh, subject for today is going to actually go east, and we'll get to see some of, it's not really the focus, but you'll get to see some of the different tendencies of Western theology. We're going to deal with a man named Tertullian. And Tertullian, in a lot of ways, embodies what became uh, what, later Western church theology. Tertullian, for those of you who haven't met Tertullian before, his name is spelled T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-N. And um, he's a big, he's really a, a big um, character, really influential. Um, he's really big in church history, and so we really need to cover him. Today, as I mentioned, I'm going to kind of lay some basic facts about Tertullian, and then hopefully next week, and maybe even a third week, we'll kind of get into some of the nitty-gritty uh, stuff uh, more in detail um, that has to do with this man and his life, and his specifically his doctrine. So who was uh, Tertullian? Tertullian was a uh, Roman, born in Carthage, the son of a Roman centurion, and he grew up to be a lawyer. Uh, he, now, the ideal of a Roman lawyer, if you know much about Roman history, a Roman lawyer was not only an expert in the rules and the laws that the Roman Empire had, but really the ideal is that a Roman lawyer was supposed to be a master of rhetoric. And by rhetoric, I mean in a classical sense, not just, you know, bombastic necessarily, making big speeches, but, you know, in the classical sense, it's the art of persuading people by the eloquent use of language. It can be bombastic, for sure. But, um, and the, sort of the, maybe the quintessential icon of the Roman Empire who embodies that was Cicero from the first century BC. It's just this uh, very eloquent lawyer who defeated other lawyers by, you know, in, in his defenses or prosecutions by just giving these very eloquent oratories. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a combination. It was a combination of using reason, logic, and eloquent speech together. That was the ideal of a, uh, of a Roman lawyer. That's a profession that Tertullian chose. And whether he was successful as a lawyer or not, I don't really know, because we don't we don't know much about that life of his. But we do know that eventually his profession as a as a Roman lawyer served him well when he became a Christian writer. Tertullian was born and raised in a pagan family. He practiced all the idolatry and pagan practices of the culture, the society around him. Until in his either mid, or probably mid to late 30s, he encountered and believed in the gospel. He converted to Christianity. And that would be at a, in probably the 190s AD. One author or one, one scholar has given about 197 or so. So right at the end, Right toward the end of the second century, he becomes a Christian. Now, as soon as Tertullian became a Christian, he took the rhetorical art of his legal profession and he began to use it to write for and about the Christian faith. And uh, in due time, Tertullian became one of the most proliferous Christian writers from this period of church history. In fact, he's really one among two or three rivals for that position. Some of one or one or two of them we'll meet later on. But he wrote a whole lot of stuff. He began uh, he began by writing 
as an apologist. Uh, one, one thing also we should say about Tertullian. Tertullian, as we might expect from a Roman lawyer, he was very eloquent. You can see that in his writings. It really shows, uh, shows out. He's one of the most quoted church fathers from this time. He's just got a lot of um, idiomatic sayings and just uh, quotes that are very, very useful that both Protestants and Catholics alike have kind of reached back to and, and love to bring up. Now, when I say eloquent, I don't necessarily mean gentle. <laughs> eloquence, um, of course, we tend to think of it as kind of a gentle artist, an eloquent speaker. You tend to think of him as, as someone who's winsome. But eloquence isn't always that way. Um, eloquence can also be aggressive, sharp-witted, provocative. And that was Tertullian's brand of eloquence. In fact, one, at least one by the I've read... He likened Tertullian's style to the much later Martha Luther, Luther style. Uh, Tertullian could be bombastic. He was definitely he had a sharp wit. He was, imagine the orator slash writer who kind of whittles his opponents down so they look ridiculous. That was Tertullian. And that's, uh, he took his profession and he immediately put it to work. Once he became a Christian, he put it to work as an apologist. That's what he began as. So we've met the apologists before. There were the, the classical Greek apologists, so to speak. Tertullian was more like a Roman lawyer apologist. He set about, uh, one, of his, well, one of his most famous works is called To the Nation. It's a longer work. And, and what he does in that is he, he, well, he doesn't really so much defend Christian faith. It's a writing, it's, it's addressed to, it's, it's in the voice, it's as if it's addressing to, addressing and speaking to um, pagan society around him. And in that, he doesn't so much defend Christian faith as attack the double standard of pagan society. With the double standards with which pagans were accusing Christians. Um, what he effectively does, he takes the accusations against Christians of that time and he turns those same accusations on the wider society around him. So, for example, Christians were accused of eating babies. You mentioned that? Well, Tertullian turns that around on them, and he says the Romans and the Hellenists practice infanticide. They kill their, their children. They, they expose them. And they don't want them. The Christians were also accused of incest. And Tertullian uh, turned that back on them and said, you're guilty of gross immorality and even to the point of inadvertently committing incest at times. And then the Christians, of course, uh, well, no, this one, I, this is an odd one. Christians were accused at one point of worshipping a donkey's head. I'm not really sure where that, you know, music, but I'm not sure where that uh, accusation came from. Well, Tertullian kind of semi-humorously, he, he turned that back around on them and he attacked all their many different types of gods and the way that their gods re resembled at times animals and the fact that sometimes their gods were animals. And he said, you guys worship entire herds of cattle. Here's a quote from, from his book, To the Nations. He says this, quote, per This perhaps is your grievance against us, that when surrounded by cattle worshippers of every kind, we, the Christians, are simply devoted to darkness. So he doesn't even defend himself against the donkey accusation. He just takes that accusation and sarcastically turns it back on the pagans themselves. So that's how pagan, or I'm sorry, that's how Tertullian more or less began. 
And then having willed apart the pagans in various writings that he wrote and so-called apologies, he then turned his pen on the heretics. So the next thing that uh, Tertullian became was, so to speak, the ultimate heretic bunker. Kind of followed in the, in the footsteps of another Western theologian, Irenaeus, who we met before. Uh, so he, Tertullian began to write a number of works. His longest work that he, in, of all his writings, is a work called Against Marcion. In fact, most of much, I would say most of much of what we know about Marcion's heresy, we actually learned from that book. He also wrote uh, books on uh, books against uh, a couple guys, Hermogenes and Praxeus, uh, some other heresies of the time. And in his book against Marcion, he exposes the absurdity of Marcion's claims. He, he basically parades them one after another and exposes the the, uh, the problem with Marcion's thinking and the contradictions, self-contradictions in, in what Marcion claims. If you remember Marcion, he was a guy who basically proposed two gods, two rival gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, that's the evil God, according to Marcion. And then there's this other good God, which is revealed in Christ, um, which comes, reveals himself later in history, of course, through, through Christ. And obviously a heresy. Um, Tertullian picks him apart. Now, beyond simply whacking pagans and busting heretics, Tertullian also wrote a number of doctrinal works for Christians themselves. So there's, there's some things he wrote on, uh, one work on repentance, um, a number of other things that were of interest and in, uh, just to reveal a bit more about this, this theology. Also reveals a bit more, his writings kind of reveal a bit more to us about what Christian doctrine and practice was in the third century, at least over in Carthage. So um, I don't know if I alluded to before, but if, you, if you're not familiar, Carthage is over here, so... This part of the world is, is developing a little bit different from over here in terms of uh, Christian doctrine. Some things are the same, some things are different. Now, eventually, later in life, uh, Tertullian also starts to write against the church. Uh, there's a few things that happen to take place, and... Um, uh, he, he starts to have some issues with the rest of the church, so the rest of the church starts to have some issues with him. So eventually, he becomes he starts to be he starts to write against um, uh, Rome, against other major churches in the area, and um, so for that reason uh, and a lot of other reasons, Tertullian is actually quite controversial. Tertullian was first a pagan, then a Christian, then a church elder. Eventually, he became this bishop of Carthage. In his writings, he, he was, you could say he was first an apologist, then a heretic buster, then a theologian, finally a schismatic. What happened about maybe a decade, a decade or more after his conversion, uh, Tertullian actually embraced the teachings of Montanism. He became a pretty um, staunch Montanist. And as Montanism, which we learned, uh, began to fall out with the church. The church began to have, increasingly began to have misgivings about it and ultimately repudiated it. Tertullian simultaneously fell out with the church and in, uh, eventually started writing against the church and in defense of Montanism. Ultimately, Tertullian later in life even fell out with the Montanists. I don't, I'm not sure as yet what that was all about, but even the Montanists 
he had he had a fault, he had a disagreement with them, and so he started his own sect. So there's a little bit of irony in his life trajectory. The, he's the man who kind of began as the heretic buster. Uh, he's there, so to speak, he presenting himself as the one, you know, championing uh, orthodox doctrine, and yet he ends up in the end as a sectarian in his own right. So he is quite controversial. His life is controversial. His doctrine in places is controversial, and his legacy is controversial. When we read Tertullian's uh, you know, doctrine, when we kind of sum it up, or in certain times when we're just reading it in, in different places, it, I'll have to say there are times when it is difficult to love him. He is, uh, he's got a personality. He's also, he commits a lot of errors. He does some things that are, <coughs> disagree strongly with, and some points of view that we might not like. At the same time, also, there are times when it's difficult not to love him. He says some really good things that are really helpful for the church. And so I think for this reason, we as Protestants, um, evangelicals, we have a sort of an ambivalent feeling toward Tertullian. There are places where we're like, oh, I love that. Yeah, that's great. Good for you, Mr. Tertullian. And then there are other times where we're like, oh, my gosh, how can you say something like that? And the truth of it is, um, the rest of the church is probably honestly in the same position, though for different reasons. Uh, the Catholic Church, um, although they differ from us significantly on key doctrines, they're going to have problems with Tertullian as well. He was a schismatic. He was not exactly a champion. At the end of the day, he's not anybody's champion. He was a very controversial person. He lapsed into error in places, but he did also get a number of things right. So in, in the next week or two, we're going to get down into some of the specifics and some of the things that he said. Uh, I really want to get into especially his doctrine or his gospel. That's an important one we have to do with. Um, so we will go there. But today, I um, probably want to just leave you on a, on a good note, or mostly good note. One of the big contributions that Tertullian left us was his doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the church, because of the scriptures that the apostles left us, they knew that there's a Trinity. They believed that God is three, one, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The idea, however, and, and it's even the name Trinity, had not really been developed very well. And so much of the time, much of the time that the church was spending in establishing a doctrine through the second century was, was, was a preoccupation with denying what the heretics were saying. So heretics would come along and say something like, well, God is, he's not really three persons, he just kind of exhibits himself or, or, or reveals himself in three different ways so it sounds like he's three persons. Modalism. It's false, that's a heresy. And um, Tertullian is one of the earliest guys who actually dares, who actually attempts to try to elaborate, you know, what is the Trinity? What's the nature of it? And as he does that, he gets some things pretty solid, and actually with things that become very helpful for us. Now, he gets some things wrong, too. He commits some errors, but he makes some contributions. One of the first things uh, that Tertullian insists on very biblical is he insists on oneness or unity, the oneness or unity of God, but he plainly rejects the notion that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are the very self-same person. That would be modalism. Um, and, and the term that 
uh, Tertullian actually used was, quote, unity in Trinity. So God is unity in Trinity is what he said. Uh, also, it's kind of interesting at this point, too, that he kind of acknowledged that, at least in Carthage, as he, in his experience, he felt the majority of Christians in favor of um, the oneness of God were denying the Trinity throughout. He said the majority of them were in simpleness. He said, I won't, I won't call them stupid or, or non-intellectual, just being simple. They embraced that concept, but they denied the Trinity. So it was a, a controversy even in that time. Um, and he says it's not necessary. The idea of Trinity actually underlines it, or it actually supports the idea of unity. And there was a term at that time that was used a lot in the church called monarchy. Um, the idea that God is a monarch. He's not multiple gods, like uh, the, the polytheism of the pagans around us. And uh, there's also a, sort of a, a term at the time that people were using monarchianism to kind of represent that idea. And Tertullian comes out and he argues, you know what, the idea of Trinity does not challenge the monarchy of God. And he makes a long argument for that fact. He says this in one of his books, it's actually a book against the heretic, he says this, God is, quote, three, not in condition, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in aspect, yet of one substance. And there is a key formula that actually eventually makes its way into the Nicene Creed. We had a, I think we had a sermon on that not too long ago. Um, in the Nicene Creed, we state that God is... You know, three persons, but one substance. So that one substance, I don't know if that originates in Tertullian, but Tertullian's influence as a writer definitely, you know, got that as a term out there. Eventually, later on, it becomes even a bit controversial. Um, but uh, we're going to get to, in the 4th century, we're going to get into the, the Arian heresy, which is a, a heresy where, if, if you haven't heard of it before, it's the idea, basically, guys who, direct, who, who reject the Trinity, reject the deity of Christ, and um, the Nicene Creed, of course, was, was formulated to respond to that. The Nicene Creed arguably got their one substance from uh, guys like Tertullian. Tertullian was one of the key people who put that in. Now, Tertullian also goes on, he attempts to explain God's oneness in, stub in substance, and yet threeness in personality, if you will, and he states that the Son originated in the Father as the Father's reason, and he says that's the same as the Logos, that the um, uh, Greek philosophers and Greek apologists have been using. Now, this, of course, is where uh, Tertullian begins to border on error. This is where it gets a little bit dangerous for him. And so he makes some clarifications that most of his clarifications are basically sound. He, he says that the Son and Holy Spirit, although they originate in the Father, they are they have personality. That is not to divest them. They're not just this idea or this attribute of God. They are persons. He insists on that. He also insists that this origination uh, is not the same as the Gnostic ideas of emanation. So if you remember when we talked about the Gnostics, is this idea of God, this ultimate personless being, and out of which come all these different emanations, right? Well, Tertullian says, well, the thing about these emanations is they're kind of separate. They're kind of their own separate personalities. They can, not just personalities, but they have separate wills. They're, they can be contrary to God. 
Um, and there uh, seems to be an infinite number of them, or maybe it's a finite number of them, but there's just a lot of them. He says it's not like that. That's not what I mean when I say uh, that, that the Son originated in the Father. However, what he does do is he says that, he, he basically states what it sounds like he's saying is that the Son kind of originated in the Father as the Father's reason. It seems to sound like he's saying just prior to creation. It's really like the Son went forth to create the universe. Now when he says something like that, it would seem as though he's implying that there was a beginning to the Son's existence. And that, of course, is a heresy. And that eventually devolves into the Arian heresy. The Arians had a motto in which they stated, there was, a, there was when the Son was not. They said there was a time when Jesus, the Christ, the second person of the, tri of the Trinity, did not exist. So there's a point in time in history where the Son came into existence, according to them. And that's a heresy. So you can definitely see how Tertullian's explanation is still a little bit immature. Um, it still uh, potentially lends itself to heresy, and it, it, he gets some things a little bit wrong. But he also makes a pretty big contribution, so we are, uh, we are indebted to him for that. So that's one of the good, one of the better things that we get from Tertullian. I'm just starting to get that He does contribute a lot to the church's eventual uh, formula formulating of, of, of a definition and explanation of, of the doctrine of the Trinity.